Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Empire of Light, which we've just seen. Um, it's the third in our unofficial trio of uh, movies about the magic of cinema. Although this, I have to say, is really, I think, being misadvertised. Um, the advertising really was selling it as the magic of cinema, the magic of the movies. And here it's definitely an element, but in the fullness of the film... It's one of many elements, and quite a small one, I would say. I was surprised that it was as much as it was, because what I'd heard from, from people was how refreshing to see a film that's about the people working in the cinema instead of the magic of cinema. And actually, the magic of cinema ends up kind of taking quite a considerable role in the film as well. Towards the end, yeah. Um, so it's set in Britain in the 80s, in the very early 80s, um, it was filmed at the Margate Dreamland, I think the cinema is. Mm. It's never, they never say we're in Margate, and the cinema is called the Empire here. Mm. Um, so Margate looks beautiful. Yeah, Olivia Colman plays the duty manager at this cinema. What we see is her opening up the cinema at the start of the film, all the lights coming on and so on, and we see the kind of majesty of the place. Mm. Um, and it really is a beautiful old cinema. It's gorgeous. And we see it as a place of work. So we meet the projectionist, played by Toby Jones. We meet uh, the various staffers. We meet the uh, manager, played by Colin Firth. We're told their wages, £4 a day. <laughs> yeah, £4.50, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, th- there is a lot of that. So this is a film which is heavy on the nostalgia of the 80s. If you know this era in Britain, then there's hardly a shot in the film that isn't reminding you of something very vividly. So there are lots of shots, particularly early on, of all the sweets in the counter and all the old packaging. We see a kind of lilt as it was, you know, 1981 and so on. Um, that will all be kind of jumping out at people mm. who know this stuff very well. Um, and that thing of, you know, £4.50 is a day's wage and people will be remembering that, that, that a cinema ticket is £1 mm. or £1.50. Um, that a box of Maltesers is 20p. Like, all those things are always kind of jumping at you. And you could hear the audience. We were at the Mac because it's not showing at Cineworld. And the audience was fairly full. And, and full we, of people. And we were the youngest people there. I certainly was. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> there were lots of I was the second youngest person. <laughs> there were lots of people who um, obviously know this era very well. And, and you could hear them remembering it when mm. things were popping up. Screen. You could hear them murmuring and mumbling to each other and chatting. Yes, I was involved in that too. I mean, you know, the film is set when I was 18. And I remember all of the films uh, that are being screened. Uh, Private Benjamin and being there and the Blues Brothers and Stir Crazy are the ones that uh, are most often referenced. You see posters for uh, Warren Beatty films and so on. So Mm. it is that era. But I must say, it's the third film about cinema that we've seen. It's the only one that you you said was relief at the beginning. It's only two hours because all the others have been three or more. And actually, this felt by far, to me, the longest of any of them. I couldn't stop looking at my watch. I thought it was, like, deadly dull and banal, and I hated it. Oh, right. I was really into it, um, surprisingly so, because I really wasn't expecting to be. Um, let, let me finish saying, you know, kind of setting it up. So we've met all the all the members of staff. We've had our, our uh, nostalgia hit, although it keeps coming. And um, a new member of staff joins, uh, who is Stephen, played by Michael Ward, um, who is black. And that is quite unusual. Everyone here is white. And his race is important. The National Front has a presence 
in the film, let's say. But he begins a relationship with the Olivia Colman character. Olivia Colman is the reason, I think, that I find it so easy to get on with this film. Because mm. she is such an empathetic presence, such an easily empathetic, open presence. And it, it, her character is not a million miles from other characters that we've seen her play. She particularly reminds me of the character Harriet that she played in Green Wing, which is where I kind of first saw her, really, or knew that I saw her some 15 years ago, maybe, um, where she was this kind of office worker in a hospital, and she was kind of constantly put upon. She had all these kids. She had a husband who didn't seem to care about her, and she was constantly kind of denying herself happiness. She's very good at that sort of thing, Libby Coleman, and there's some of that going on here. Well, so much so that I was beginning to think you're beginning to recognise all her tics. Sure. Yeah, and her vocal inflections and some of her expressions. I mean, I liked her in it. I mean, I, in fact, I think I liked all the actors. And I was thinking about Sam Mendes, that, you know, he always ensures he's got a great cinematographer. So the film is full of gorgeous images, like beautifully lit. The lighting is gorgeous. But actually, I thought they were empty. Yeah, that they weren't expressive. Mm. And I thought all the actors were wonderful. But I thought the direction was terrible. The film never got into a rhythm. You know, there were kind of like really long stretches where you thought it was like really predictable or things were taking too long. Or there was a lingering on an actor's face or uh, setting was used as theatrical background in a theater. Right. Um, it never to me felt alive at any point. It did to me when, they, when the, their relationship begins. I didn't like that either, you know. I kind of I don't see why you couldn't have shown that relationship between them unfolding as one of I don't know feeling or friendship or I didn't like the way that the sex scenes were handled. I thought it kind of uh, put Olivia Coleman to disadvantage, right? Uh, and it didn't answer questions. You could see what she sees in him, right? But does one, why does someone as gorgeous as Michael Ward see in her? It just didn't make sense to me, really. I don't think his character is fleshed out nearly well enough. He's not fleshed out at all, really. And he's kind of a cipher, really, to reflect her. He's mm. the foil, really. To mm. Because it's not that I don't think that Olivia Colman is lovable or you could be attracted to her or anything like that, but, we, but you do need to see it from him. Yeah. You understand it from him. It's not just that she's quiet and mousy and she kisses him and then she's nervous about it, everything. Like you you need to get a better feeling from him mm. why why the feeling is reciprocal. I mean I think she's very beautiful, you know. Um but she is old enough to be his mother. So you've gotta you've gotta get some sense of what he finds yeah in her uh, that you don't see. Um I mean actually it struck me that it's like it's a reverse manic pixie dream girl thing. Like you get these films. Zoe Deschanel was the kind of queen mm. of these films, sort of, sort of ten years ago, where a girl shows up and she's kind of full of life and she has colourful hair and this that, and the other, and she will brighten up a man's life and make him realise there's more to life than this that and the other. Mm. And um, and this was like just a gender swap version of that, really, because mm. the thing about the manic pixie dream girl uh, sort of type is. It, it, well, it's a type. It's like they're not fleshed out characters. They're there to help someone else achieve a thing. And that's kind of what's going on here. So the only difference here, the manic pixie dream girl is a sort of a manic pixie dream boy. Except he's not so manic or pixie either. Yeah. But he, he has that thing going on. He's the person who gives her life, gives her, makes her yeah, free I mean, to express herself. Yeah, except the film 
also does something else because certainly uh, racism, the rise of the National Front, uh, the place of the travails of black people in this culture are at least as important as any other theme in the film. Yes. Right, and they are his. So the thing is that he is made to play those without actually playing a character, really. Well, that's it. Again, in Um, those, he's playing a type. He's playing the black representative you know, mm. the, the black person who receives hatred from white supremacists. Mm. And he's, you know, when racists approach him and are vicious to him, as we see a couple of times in the film, he doesn't get much of it. Uh, the, the film doesn't give him response, if you see what I mean. Like, it doesn't... He he is he's a cipher for just responding to, there's, there's a black guy being hounded by skinheads. It's mm. very sad. And I want to see the character personally respond. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do really... know what you mean. Um, I really hated it, uh, and I found it really dull. I suppose I wish I'd hated it a bit more. At least it would have been exciting. So I think it was more <laughs> dull, you know, than um, uh, hateful. Um, it wasn't hateful, but I just found it supremely dull and exemplifying all of the things that I really dislike about British cinema. It's almost a cliche of a certain kind of British cinema, mm. you know, that that relies on actors, that is very theatrical, you know, that lacks dynamism and rhythm, that doesn't know how to, how to, how to create movement and drama cinematically. Uh, it's overly reliant on actors. Uh, it, uh, its idea of the image is to create pretty images, which you know, Deacon certainly succeeds in creating very memorable images. Um, Mm. But I don't think they convey anything. Well, like, I suppose you get the sense that, you know, the cinema is beautiful, that it's in a beautiful setting, you know. um, You get the feeling of it being a place of safety and home. The lighting inside is all orange and rich tones, and outside is the seaside. And even when it's daylight, it's still kind of blue and grey and colder. Isn't the film's delineating that those spaces? Yeah, I thought some things were just awful. I mean, it was very interesting, right? Because when we saw the Spielberg film, The Fablemans, yesterday, and there's that wonderful John Ford monologue. I was saying, you know, tell me where it's the horizon. Yeah, kind of. Yes, yeah, when the horizon's at the top of the frame, it's interesting. When the horizon's at the bottom of the frame, it's interesting. When the horizon's in the middle, it's boring as shit. Yes, well, this film, you know, I thought was was like that. This one was a middle-of-the-frame horizon. Middle-of-the-frame horizon kind of throughout. Really. I was actually looking, right, because of that yesterday, and I thought, I mean, the thing about that John Ford bit in The Fablemans is you can certainly see there's a kind of rule-of-thumb truth to it, but also it's it's reductive and kind of, of silly, right? Of and, course. And so I'm looking for it and I'm going, you know, when the horizon's at the top and bottom, it is kind of interesting. And then those shots, you get these kind of establishing shots of the cinema mm. and the horizon is conspicuously in the middle. I'm going, that is boring. Mm. <laughs> it's not just that. I mean, you know, the scenes where the skinheads invade the cinema. Yeah. Right. You could have, you could, a better director would have made those so much more intense and scary and dynamic. Mm. You know, I thought, isn't it terrible that, you know, you have all of these skinheads invading and you're finding it quite dull, yeah? Yeah, or at least predictable. I mean, that is the word to... Actually, last time we talked about Sam I mean, Mendes... I meant visually dull and, and and actually dramatically dull. Well, last time we talked about Sam Mendes was when we saw 1917, which um, really surprised you in particular mm. because you're not someone who's used to liking Sam Mendes' films. Um, and one word that 
that you used, which I thought was kind of perfect for him, is obvious. Mm. His films are obvious. And there are things in 1917 which are quite obvious. That thing with the milk, you know, and feeding the baby. Mm. Um, The fact that the story does that is obvious, and what it's kind of doing with it is obvious. And that's kind of what's going on here. So, you know, the National Front comes by, and it's obvious what the film is showing you, telling you how it's doing it. There's nothing that interesting or crazy about it. But that's not to say that when the film is doing those things... I don't find effective things about it. And in the end, I found it moving. Even though right at the end, obviously spoiler territory, we're right at the end of the film now, um, when he's on the bench saying goodbye to um, Olivia Colman's character because he's going off to college, you know, I'm screaming at the film, just hug. Mm. You know, And of course that's what it wants me to be screaming. And then she runs to him and they hug and even though I don't think it was filmed as well as it could have been, actually, it could no. have been made more moving, still, when they hug, I I got a little intake of breath, and I, yes, they, you know, and, and so the film is doing the most plain, obvious, predictable but things. But also thin. But they work for me. I still, well, I still had sympathy with it all. So. Well, I didn't, and I thought there were values in the scene that could have been brought out more to the fore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of. And also interpersonal things. You know, does he slightly want to get rid of her? Is she too clingy? Will he ever return? Will they meet again? I mean, those are all questions that kind of should be overhanging and, you know, creating tension and friction and, you know, making the scene kind of come alive. And they're largely absent, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 I thought it was of the utmost banality. And yet with the sheen, I, I could, I, the audience responded to everything. Mm-hmm. Right, so I think you know the average age was about seventy, uh, and they, you know, it's it's what I call a Lennington Spa film. It's the kind of film <laughs> that's made for a middle-aged Lennington Spa audience. Yeah. In the middle of it, you know, they read Woodsworth, they read you a poem by Auden, and they end with a poem by Larkin. Right, kind mm. of. You know, Middle England kind of. Yeah, exactly. The one who studied more than school. Like the three poems you remember uh, from school sort of thing. uh, It definitely has that going on. Um, So banal. uh, Sheldon, friend of ours and film dude, um, wrote a really interesting post about this on Facebook because, as he said, the conversation has been going on on Facebook already um, and we're kind of later to the party than everyone else because a lot Mm. of people have seen this. And uh, he, I mean, it it was the most fabulously nerdy thing where he was writing about his memories of cinema going in the 80s and what matched from the film and what didn't. And particularly someone who knows cinema and knows the workings of cinema as he and so many of kind of his friends and our friends mm. of friends, my friends of friends at least, you obviously mm. know these people better than I do. Um, you know, they were sharing their memories. And I think it's interesting that it's about memory, right? It's the memory of going to the cinema. And of course, the thing is, the more accurate your memory, the more you'll find to disagree with. But it has this, it is, it's, it's memory of what life was like then. I'll give you a sense of a couple of things that Sheldon said. Um, I mean, the first thing was the loose popcorn. He said, I don't remember loose popcorn from the cinema in 1980, 1981. It was all in packets. Mm. You know, and a lot of people kind of kind of concurring with this. What about the Kiora? I didn't see any Kiora. <laughs> 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 um, um, I've never known a poetic projectionist. They're practical types, not given to ruminating on the metaphysics of optical illusions. Mm. So it was lovely, because Toby Jones is the one here, and who was in the trailer, Mm. saying the magic of 24 frames a second, the the optical illusion that brings life and stuff. And you go, of course, these practical people, they work with machinery. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, just because they're practical doesn't mean they don't have a poetic side. Uh, There are all these questions about um, how we can operate two cinemas on his own. 
this question of it being a two-screen cinema anyway, and actually previously a four-screen cinema, and we see this disused upper floor. Mm. I mean, I, obviously my only experience is Canada. Yeah. But that is the time that the multiplexes came in. It's exactly at that period. You know, and there was a whole bunch of them built. So my experience of cinema is one of queues and, you know, lots of customers and the opening of, you know, the Cineplex in Montreal, which had nine cinemas of various sizes. And, you know, they were showing art films alongside the other ones. And so actually one of the things that I couldn't understand, which I'm sure is the cultural difference, is why the cinema was always so empty. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, in that in that same period, you know, the ones in Montreal were definitely full, right? And we did have loose popcorn and we made our own. There was a machine <laughs> constantly popping corn, which, you know, I've never seen here. Uh, uh, and no, which makes I mean, me, these days it just comes out of bags and I think they microwave or something. Yeah, yeah, it makes me nostalgic. In fact, I was an usher in a cinema pretty much during this period. Yeah. Right? I mean, it wasn't quite 1980. It was in 1982, I think, uh, for Scarface. There was certainly no nice community feel about it. <laughs> it was like you went in, you did your hours, you went home, yeah. and you tried not to be, you know, brought down by the boredom. You know, I got fired from it because I got caught. I was caught reading a book because there was absolutely <laughs> nothing to do, right? Like, yeah. Once you t- took the tickets and sat people, right, and then I'd always wait until the the uh, chainsaw scene, right, and yeah. uh, I'd watch until that, and then like try and be invisible and read a book somewhere <laughs> and I got caught and I got fired so I didn't last very long in that but you know there was none of this kind of cow cozy supportive kind of atmosphere in my experience of it yeah, yeah. My, it was it was one screen so there weren't that many people working on it either it was the Odeon <laughs> Michael writes in response to Sheldon complaining that how can one projectionist be running all this? He says there was automation and cake stands, which meant you could do it by yourself. And and uh, I mean, basically, it was it was interesting to kind of get all of these. It, it obviously opened up people's memories of this, right? Sure. And and the more that um, which it's meant to do. That's yeah. that's the film's main. Um, I wouldn't say achievement because it's kind of cheap, but that is its drawing card. Yeah. Yeah. That is how it pleases the audience. And there was obviously a lack of satisfaction in how well it did that by our friends on Facebook, mm. um, who have quite clear and strong and informed memories of this of this era. But I also felt from the audience who we were watching it with, they felt an enormous amount of satisfaction. They were they were they were kind of reliving that era, and they were happy to be. Yes, you know what I mean. So it felt it felt quite effective to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it's well, I suppose it's an audience for the film. It's not a very cine-literate audience. Um, I think, just critically, the film has a great kind of central theme, which is, you know, a woman's revolt and a woman's heart and, you know, being driven to insanity by patriarchy, right? And how she, A, copes with that and then, you know, doesn't quite well changes course yeah isn't quite on the men by the end but you know she finds a way of changing that course and i think it kind of throws it away really mm. it kind of it doesn't know what to do with it so the the central themes really are olivia coleman really being destroyed by by men yeah and not just by men but patriarchy really i think the film is clear about that it's not just that this man this did this or that it's the whole kind of ensemble and how 
she says at some point, you know, that she won't be commanded or something. Yeah, when yeah. they're making the sandcastle. When the, the sandcastles, I'm, I'm right. Not, I'm not building to instruction. Right? Yeah. So so there's there's that, and then there's the thing about racism. And I don't know if the film just doesn't quite know how to connect them, really. You know, because they're both kind of left floating and dissipating. And I also think that the film is overly gentle with its central coming together, right? Because so you see how the Michael Ward character is careful when he's in public with her. Yeah, mm. where she's oblivious to it largely. But the film doesn't dramatize that either, you know? Mm. Kind of, there's no scene where actually them being perceived as a couple is an explosive moment, right? It's all, you're just shown the fear of it being yeah. kind of, you know, something potentially. Well, so, the most you get is when they embrace right at the end and you get a couple of people on benches surrounding them looking at them like, mm, that's weird. And yeah. that's about the, <laughs> So I just thought it was, like, really banal. Yeah, well, the thing, the thing about um, those competing themes of kind of patriarchy and, and, and racism, the film is at least, I think, clear about the kind of impact of racism on its characters. Um, the thing about patriarchy, I find much more muddled. Like the film is, is telling you that it's about patriarchy and about the impact of men on the Olivia Common character, but mostly through when she gets angry at a couple of points and kind of manic. Well, she's manic depressive, clearly. She has bipolar disorder. We see her being treated with lithium. Hmm. Um, so although although later on when she's sectioned, it, they say it's because she's schizophrenic. Um, maybe that's how it was called then or understood then, but certainly lithium I understand to be a treatment for manic depression. Hmm. Um, but the doctor even... The, I mean, the doctor that we see her going to right at the start, who's the one treating her, he actually seems to be someone who listens. You know, he's not like a friend, right? Mm. He's still a kind of old, sort of slightly curmudgeonly guy, I guess. But he's someone who listens to her, and 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 when she she says that she's feeling better, and he kind of doesn't quite believe her, mm. he asks her again, but then he believes her. Like that's not actually something I would expect from the film that's being critical of her treatment by a patriarchal system. Well, there's a sense in which she's got experiences that were not shown, mm. and then what we are shown with the Colin Frith manager is really quite, ugh. yeah. And you could see kind of an element of coercion she never wants yeah. to do it and she always ends up doing it and yeah you know kind of a lot of those things are internalized but anyway the film doesn't dramatize it very well you know in my view i just found it all dull and predictable i just find it more muddled than dull you know i wanted a clearer sense well to me the two things go together and if 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 the thing is that i end up looking at my watch thinking when is this going to be over <laughs> then you know yeah the muddling becomes the dull i mean yeah, but something. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be the same. That's all I'm saying. Like, it mm. could be something could be muzzled, but in a way that's fantastically exciting. And you sure. think maybe okay. this will it, be worked out. It could out. be. Well, to <laughs> me, to me, this was both muddled and boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it is like a really good retort because, you know, of the last three films we've seen, this is by far the shortest, and it was the only one that really bored me. <laughs> yeah, you know, kind of. I couldn't wait for it to be over. Yeah. You know what this made me think of is that I've always given credit to Sam Mendes for being so good with, with actors, yeah? yeah? The performers are often the highlight of his films. And yet this time, I thought, the performers are all really great, but he betrays them, or he doesn't show them to advantage. Or, I mean, I felt ve- really sorry for Olivia Colman, you know, to be humping Michael Ward, you know, at a distance and kind of sordidly... I thought that was, like, completely unnecessary. 
and and then you have somebody like Michael Ward who was so absolutely great in Small Axe. And of course, he's extremely beautiful in this. And this is all you can do with him, you know? And and actually, I also thought that with Colin Frith, you know, you have like a huge star, a wonderful actor like that. And that's all you use him for? Yeah, you couldn't give yeah. him a moment? I mean, do you remember that film Mothering Sunday that we saw, which um, had Olivia Colman and Colin Firth were a married couple in it? And um, I think, weren't they grieving the loss of a child or something? I can't remember. Uh, and, and she was kind of really torn apart by it, and he was sort of trying to keep trying to keep their marriage together. They were wonderful in that. Yeah. And here, it's yeah, it's it's really plain, really. Um, you said that when I said the theme of the magic of the movies mm. is kind of smaller than I think it was sold as. You were saying, well, it's still quite a part in the film. Let's think about that, because obviously we've talked about the cinema as a place of work, um, but the part of the story is Olivia Colman's character's learning to watch movies well it's not just that i mean when you're you know the first five or six shots is like you go into the place Mm. and it is gorgeous it's like an art deco masterpiece of a theater it's really beautiful you're made to admire like you know the glass and you know the reception area and the lobby and the interior and it's like gorgeous right and there is a whole thing about cinemas right because it's almost like going i don't know into buckingham palace right except you know the cinemas were people's palaces right so the building itself is a romance of the movies Mm, yeah the kind of ordinary working people had access to these spaces and these spaces were theirs right and on top of that like those scenes where you go into the projection box i mean i was really struck because you know you have Catherine hepburn and Cary grant and you have Ernst Lubitsch juxtaposed to Kenneth Williams and, you know, juxtaposed to Hitchcock. And, you know, so, I mean, there is a whole romance for what all of these people signify. Mm. And, you know, first you're allowed to just your eye wanders through them. But actually later on in the film, they're really like close ups of this thing. Right. Mm. And, you know, then you have uh, Toby Jones, Jones's monologue about movies. And, it, you know, it is he, th- he actually says something like, it is marvelous, right? It's like 24 frames a second, and there's the, like, they're all still, and there's black in between, and, you know, and it's all about the light. And, I mean, you know, kind of you couldn't worship cinema more. And then, of course, she's saved by cinema at the end, right? Yeah. Like, in a way. Yeah. So, I mean, how much more romantic do you want it to be? <laughs> yeah, it's the third film in a row that we've seen where we have important shots of people watching movies. Mm. Um I think Babylon had the worst of those when it was uh, watching Singing in the Rain at the end and it just kind of went on and on and felt quite unfocused. Mm. Obviously, it happens all through the Fablemans because the Spielberg character is constantly making movies and watching movies. But here it's right at the end when she goes to the cinema and uh, Toby Jones is about to leave and she says, show me a film, any film. Mm. And I was thinking, like, he should just say, I'm going home, I'll show you one tomorrow. But of course he does. He puts on uh, Being There. Mm. for, And we get these shots of her you know, I mean, it's again, it's shots that you've seen before. It's it's all this stuff when I was saying in previous podcasts about how the advertising for this film looked like just those Cineworld adverts for going to the cinema. These are those shots of someone from shot from below looking up with a look of wonder on their face at the screen. Mm. We see the light coming from the projection box mm. spilling overhead. Um, but I, again, it, it this actually did work for me here, mm. as obvious as it all was. Um, well, uh, it was obvious, and also I thought I thought it was kind of slightly despicable really because my frame of reference at the moment 
is uh, uh, Charlotte Wells' After Sun, right, which we haven't seen together, and I, th I don't think you've seen it at all. No, no. But um, you know, it's about a father and son, and they go on a package holiday. And one of the wonderful things about it is the film never condescends to its characters. It doesn't say, oh, look at this cheap, tacky holiday, mm. right? Like, you always get a sense of, you know, they're there, they're having a good time. It's what they do, right? The film doesn't condescend. I think this film condescends to its working-class characters, mm. you know, um, in terms of how they live, in terms of how they act, in terms of the response, you know, uh, the tweeness the of some other things. I think, you know, this is not something Sam Mendes knows about or is nostalgic for, or it, it really is, oh, kind of, you know, aren't these little people kind of, you know, human too, <laughs> is the way I read it. And I really kind of, I think it's a tone, it's condescension to working people um, that I really didn't like. It's funny, I think when it comes to talking up the, the, the value of going to the cinema and that sort of thing. And funny, actually, we saw a trailer before this as well. Mind you, this was at the Mac and you get slightly different trailers. You get We get these Pathé... Was it? No, it wasn't Pathé. It was um, Pearl and Dean um, like, mm -hmm. pre-roll things where you get interviews with actors and so on, kind of intercut with shots from the movies they're promoting. So Babylon was one. Puss in yeah. Boots was another. And, and we get these shots of like Damien Chazelle, Brad Pitt, um, Antonio Banderas, mm. talking to their various interviewers, saying you have to see this at the cinema, and thank yeah. you for coming to the cinema, and so on. And we were talking about that pre with the with the Fablemans, Steven Spielberg, before the film starts. Thanks you for coming to the cinema. There is this insistence on it. It's funny because we do that all the time on this podcast. We're mm. always talking about the value of going to the cinema and how it's so much better. Well, because it has that value. But... Like, it's one thing for us to do it. Yes. <laughs> Maybe this is very hypocritical, but I do feel like when the filmmakers themselves are doing it in the ads, there is something quite desperate about that. Yeah, there's desperate and feels like pathetic or something. It's yeah. like you feel if if Spielberg or Antonio Banderas has to thank people for coming to the cinema, then the battle for cinema is lost. Really. Yeah, and then that these films themselves are kind of slightly clunkily at points saying... This is why cinema is magic. Yeah, I can you save know. you. Yeah. Um, that that well, feels kind of desperate too. Well, it saved me. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it actually does not jive with my experience. And it is a foreign experience, obviously. You know, I wasn't raised in a British seaside town. But, you know, I remember the cues and the excitement and the huge screens and the you know, and the huge cinemas and the, you know, and Friends. Yeah, like, the, there's very little joviality about the film going in this. You don't see, like, gangs of teenagers on a date night, right? No. Which is what most people would have been doing, right, on a Friday night. Yeah. So... In fact, a few pages that you see, one's just a drunk old racist, nasty bastards. You get, you know, just a little old man hobbling into cinema, which is not to say he's not having mm. a wonderful time, but then it's the focus is on, I suppose, then taking the piss out of him. It's, it doesn't come across as the wonderful... I mean, I remember when I used to go... This is, And I grew up in the 90s. I don't remember this era at mm. all. I grew up in the 90s going to the UCI in, um, in Sully Hull, which was kind of a walk down from my house, and it's closed now. And that had some eight or ten screens in it. And they were down this long corridor. And I remember all, you know, going to pick up your tickets, getting the popcorn, going down this long corridor, opening the thing. I remember the, the ident that you used to get for UCI, which you mm. can, you'll see on, you can see it on YouTube. It's this um, kind of electron going around, I think the word UCI in the middle, and it goes, 
boom, as it comes towards the camera, it gets bigger and bigger and louder and louder. It was fucking awesome, mm. scary, um, and it was it was it was really fucking exciting every time you went to the cinema. Incredibly exciting, and actually much more so as a little kid. You know, when I got when I was old enough to sort of go to the cinema myself and with my friends, it was kind of it was it was you were going out with your mates and it was good fun and we were seeing whatever the latest film was. But there was something very different about it when you were eight years old and going with your parents. It was a treat. Sure. You know, and that was kind of, that was really magic. And going out on the Friday night and Saturday night when it was at its busiest. Yeah, well, there was none of that. No, there's um, none of that here. So, and also, I mean, just to, you know, to continue this idea of, you know, the film kind of patronizing. Um, in some ways, of course, there's a kind of modest, ironic undertone. Right, so so when Colin Frith has the big premiere of Chariots of Fire, you know, and they're expecting all these stars and so on, and really the only person who you see is really the Lord Mayor, right? Like there are no stars, <laughs> and of course he introduces by saying something like, "Welcome, you know, to the regional premiere," <laughs> like yeah. yeah, yeah, and actually, and of course it's treated as a joke, and yeah, kind of the audience reacted. It's, it's not even a real premiere, or you know, it's not as if they decided to have the premiere in this town instead of in London. It's just the regional premiere, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, it's kind of a joke that everyone responded to, but I also thought it's kind of part of that condescension of the film, yeah? Mm. You know, you're not metropolitan, you're not sophisticated, this is just the little people in the provincial town. Right? The provinces, yeah. <laughs> I, and I hate that, really. Why are these, you know, people in another geographical area not as worthy of human experience and human emotion and you know why why kind of devalue it in those stupid and very british kind of cultural terms that's one of the things i like least about british culture yeah yeah it's very british because it's all coded you know no. you're not you're not actually saying you guys are a load of shit when you say regional premier it's just it's obvious it's well if you know the code it's obvious i know you know if you know how you're being spoken to well and the audience did yeah, yeah? so the film makes it complicit in this kind of denigration, you know, of the regional and the local and the, you know, the little people. Yeah, and it's about the way you say something without saying it. Mm. Yeah. So, so... We are cunts, aren't we, really? (laughs) 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 There's no code in that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my overall view is that kind of, you know, the film uh, fulfills every cliché uh, that I have of a particular type of British cinema, overly theatrical, grounded in performances, not cineliterate, uh, class-based, etc., etc., that I really don't like, you know, and this ticks all the boxes for me. Mm. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of that, and I shouldn't have liked it as much as I did. I just got on with it, and that's to my eternal shame as a mid- little Englander, middle Englander, piece of shit, who's <laughs> satisfied with absolute mediocrity. <laughs> If it's got Olivia Coleman in it. Uh, all right. Well, on that note, <laughs> thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, well, it'll at least be enjoyable to listen to. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> <clears throat>
I mean, look at it. It's, it's yeah, Roger Deakins, cinematographer. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did the music. Mm. All, all for no. I hated the song. To no effect. You know, I thought it was such a cliche of song use, mm. right? Like uh, Olivia Colman listening to Bob Dylan and Johnny Mitchell. And, and then learning to <clears> listen to two times. And Mickey Mousing emotion. You know, <laughs> it's like, ugh. Yeah. I know. And, well, and, I think, and the Roger Deakins thing is just, it's like predictably pretty. That's yeah. what it is. You go, it these is. films are just beautiful and and well lit and you can see everyone's faces and all that kind of thing it's just it's predictably lovely that's Roger Deakins why doesn't he push himself and do something well I mean I think you know Deakins has to do what the the director asks I mean and clearly no but he can pick his projects right surely sorry he can pick his projects right Roger Deakins well I'm sure he can pick his projects but at a certain point the director has to say I want this image to convey whatever yeah yeah right and you know I think um there's clearly a lack of directing, you know, the the cameraman here because just the shots are beautiful, yeah. right? But if uh, if one is meant to get more from it than that, they're really pretty. I didn't get it. Yeah, but what I mean is, I don't I don't mean he should do more in this film. I mean it's obvious from the pitch for this film what it's supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed to feel like. You could pick a different project. Well, true. I, so you're saying why I work with Sam and this at all? I can tell you, I wouldn't. <laughs> Kind yeah. of, yeah. Uh, well, uh, obviously, working with them on 1917 was an interesting challenge because it had the whole one-shot thing mm-hmm. it was supposed to be doing and, and, and interesting things with kind of shooting, shoot the um, the flare thing, shooting at night and so on. So, obviously, that had its challenges. But this, where's the challenge, basically? But still, the best thing about this film are those images. Yeah. You know, kind of that is what stays with you. They're really beautiful. They're evocative. You get a real sense of, of place. Uh you know, kind of, Michael Ward is really beautifully lit, yeah, which, uh, you know, as indeed are all the other black characters in the film, which is, you know, maybe one shouldn't compliment it because one should take it for granted, but it happens so rarely that it's still worth commenting on, mm. right? So I think, you know, kind of credit to Roger Deakins, really. Yeah. It's just that the images, however beautiful they are, don't do enough dramatically Mm. for me.